Death, the great equalizer, destination for all things. Since time exploded into being, death has preoccupied a grim part of every mind. But distress isn't found in dying. Rather, the uncertainty of what awaits us in the beyond, and if such a concept of the hereafter really exists. Fear of the unknown urges us to find escape from its relentless march. In her seminal book, titled On Death and Dying, psychiatrist Elizabeth Kugler-Ross dispels the superstition surrounding death, examines both the individual and the societal attitudes towards it, and how such frameworks engender anxieties about this final stage. Models of grief, of trauma, and the need for support are explored. Central to her position, Kubler-Ross argues that death is not an event isolated from life, but rather a natural part of living and must be embraced as such. For many generations, people have dwelt on such topics. Theologians attempt to prepare the soul through religion, thinkers the mind through philosophy, scientists the body through alchemy. Words and acts intended to allay anxieties, but the troubling reality is death remains a great veil beyond which we have little understanding. What if, however, we were to know? How might our societies, our norms and thinking be altered? This question is answered in the multiverse of Magic the Gathering. Unlike our own world, the inhabitants of the blind eternities have pierced this veil and are enlightened to the fate anticipated when breath becomes air. Its presentations are manifold, its nuances varied, the depths of which we'll shortly explore. But one fact is abundantly clear. Death isn't the end, merely a transformation. Myriad beliefs surround the hereafter, shaped greatly by a plane's inherent structure, modifying mana, cultural dogmas and superstitions. On some planes, the afterlife is nothing more than an idea, a proposed but hypothetical location for the deceased to pass. On others, it's an ephemeral dreamscape, impossible for mortals to comprehend or touch, but that nonetheless occupies a very real place. And yet, on others, it's a blatant reality, something so apparent and entwined with life that it cannot be ignored. The afterlife is as variable in admittance as it is variegated in appearance. Cast in all lights of a spectrum that ranges from a dark, twisted abyss of fear to a resplendent, leisurely eternity of abundance, the afterlife holds both majesty and misery and commands thoughtful action across the multiverse. Few planes are as dismal as the gloom of Innistrad, where all manner of nightmares lurk and where light and hope fight constantly against encroaching darkness. Death permeates all things. It's natural that it preoccupies the minds of many. Ancient beliefs hold that Innistrad's moon is deeply connected to the afterlife. Perhaps a brilliant light to guide souls to blessed eternity, much as the rays of a lighthouse guide ships through stormy waters. The moon was constancy, a soft glow of hope in the blackness. After the creation of Archangel Avicen and foundation of her religion, the Church of Avicen continued to propagate ideas of an afterlife free from Innistrad's woes, an escape from grim reality that inspired hope. The commandments of the Church state that those who uphold virtue and retain unshakable faith in Avicen 
will be granted upon death the blessed sleep. The blessed sleep is the eternity that all humans crave. It represents safety, finality, and peace in oblivion. Avicen herself and the angels of flight alabaster are meant to guide the souls of those who have died to the very edge of the plane, whereby their spectral essence will merge with the ether of the blind eternities and grant them respite. This is the most desirable end to life on Innistrad, for it's a realm plagued by undeath. Liches, zombies, and vampires all represent the debauched hell that awaits those unable to attain the blessed sleep, as their souls are doomed to eternal anguish, trapped in bodies animated by unnatural evils. Though there's no notion of a heavenly paradise, the prospects of hell loom visibly in the mountains and across the earth. Great scars in the land open to a fiery and infernal realm, from which pour all manner of demon and devil. With Avicen's imprisonment and subsequent madness, many spirits of the dead were left unguided, forced to roam Innistrad's haunts as geists. Wayward aberrations denied eternal sleep. What is surprising is that cremation is abhorred within the Church of Avicen, as it's believed to spawn hateful and violent spirits. But this also curbs the number of corpses available for undeath, which we see in the card Thraben Heretic, whose flavor text enlightens us. Let them decry me for burning the dead. I'm not giving those ghoul callers any more fuel for their madness. This practice is more readily accepted in the Sigardian church, which rose to prominence in the wake of Avicen's death. Corpses are burned to release the spirits and drive them into the ether, which we see displayed in cathartic pyre. Death is feared by Innistrad's humans, not because it steals away time and life, but because little rest is found after its passing. Innistrad's blessed sleep is a state of non-existence rather than a physical location, but the afterlife on many planes is quite tangible. Theros, a land inspired by the mythos of ancient Greece, is divided metaphysically into three distinct and disparate realms. The land populated by mortals is sandwiched between Nyx, Hall of the Gods and Ethereal Firmament above, and the cold eternity of the underworld below. Nyx is forever barred from mortals. It's not a heaven the entry into which all aspire, but rather a visible guide to shape worldly action. And the underworld is not solely reserved for the damned and wicked. It's the final resting place for all souls that pass beyond life. Erebos, god of death, is the black-aligned master of this domain. Erebos guards his realm well, setting all manner of felt beasts and undead to patrol its borders against interlopers and escapees alike. He judges all who enter and discerns the location in which their spirit will dwell based on their life's endeavors. The underworld is subdivided into five discrete areas, each associated with a color of mana and each offering its own perspective on eternity. For those who led mundane, uninspired lives, Phileas offers listless tediousness, a pall of gray cast on all things. Those lost at sea or haunted by terrible, unshakable memories are doomed to wander the endless, dizzying mazes of Nerono as their sanity slowly ebbs with the tides. Cowards and deceivers are forced to endure painful, unrelenting combat within the fighting pits of Agonas 
wherein they seek through fire the courage they lacked in life. Murderous transgressors, perpetrators of unforgivable sins, are consigned to the bleak land of Tizerus, where soul and memory crumble to dust under Erebos's unforgiving glare. Only Elysia, the protected and tranquil realm of the hero, offers what some would consider heaven or paradise. Here go those of sufficient virtue, who lived inspired lives and brought glory to the gods, to toil in eternal peace. Regardless of location, the entire realm is inimical to self. Past identities and memories fade the longer a soul sojourns the underworld. Eventually, they freeze in place as their essence is leached, transformed into statues called Mysera, and pass into complete oblivion, which you see in the art and flavor text of Final Death. The underworld erodes memory, identity, and eventually the physical form, leaving only crumbling statues called Mysera, hollow monuments to mortal futility. Hearing what awaits them in the afterlife, and knowing that death is not the soul's end, Therans busy themselves to the point of obsession with garnering renown, with seeking cloud and glory, with endeavoring to please the gods and inspire those around them so that they might live eternally as a hero in Elysia, rather than suffer outside its walls. When death calls, priests perform rites to ease an individual's passage and place on them a golden funerary mask, believed to protect against memory erosion inherent to the underworld. The dead are then brought to the shores of the river Tartix, the river that rings the world and separates the mortal realm from the underworld. They await the god Athreos, who stands as the river's ferryman and ensures all reach their final destination. He's aided by beasts and watchmen who gather stray souls and those who seek to cross fate and remain amongst the living. On Kaldheim, a plane divided into ten realms connected through the cosmic branches of the world tree, we also see the afterlife manifest in physical locations. Similar to its Theron counterpart, a different afterlife is promised to those who lead worthy and virtuous lives than to those who toiled in uninspired drudgery. Starnheim sits as a beacon of light atop the world tree. It is the realm of Valkyries, Kaldheim's angelic host, and the eternity open to the deserving dead. Heroes from ages past, dauntless warriors, master scalds and storytellers, inimitable craftsmen all dwell in Starnheim's great hall, where music, feasting, tales, and merriment continue unabated. Inspired by the mythical Norse Hall of Valhalla in Asgard, Starnheim is the reward for those who died with honor. At their moment of passing, the Valkyries descend and carry them to Starnheim's eternal bliss. Diametrically situated at the base of the World Tree in an alternate vision of eternity is the misty realm of Istfel. The gargantuan roots of Kaldheim's tree are seen penetrating this basal layer while any luster of majesty is obscured by thick, ever-present haze. Here, the souls of animals, beasts and those unworthy of Starnheim's grandeur, perform indolent and indifferent imitation of life, doomed to list eternally. In parallel to the Theron underworld, an individual suffers inexorable decay, the self in essence slowly lost, 
the longer one remains in the mists. Surprisingly, Istvel is home to the God Hall, where Kaldheim's Skoti gods reside, though this is believed due to mischief perpetrated by the trickster Valky. Substituting Kaldheim's snow for the whirring desert sands of Amonket, and we're presented with another afterlife that corporeally manifests. Two possible eternities impress themselves constantly on the people of Amonket. The first is the curse of wandering, a terrible fate in which the dead are reborn as insatiable and unthinking zombies, whose animated corpses are forced to wander the dunes until the very last piece of flesh is torn from bone, and the piece of oblivion is finally granted. Opposed to this most horrible fate is the promise of paradise offered by the god Pharaoh in the afterlife. Those who obey the god Pharaoh's commands, who seek honor in life and glory in death, are bestowed his magnanimous gift and spared from the curse of wandering. The afterlife is barred by a massive gate, accessible only by barge on the great river Luxa, and opened only for passage by the worthy dead. It's believed they will laze in this paradise of verdure and light until the god Pharaoh himself returns and embraces all in eternity, free from want or fear. To this end, Amunket is indoctrinated with zealous faith and trained from an early age to endeavor the harrowing god trials, monumental tasks meant to hone body and prepare spirit. The successful are blessed with a worthy death and their bodies ceremoniously sent to the afterlife, where they will be touched by the god Pharaoh's gift, plated in luminous blue Lazotep armor, and serve as his most loyal eternals. For those who fall short of such glory, but nonetheless retain their honor, an eternity of subservience awaits as an anointed, mummified undead, spared from the curse of wandering, but made to toil as servants. Death, then, is an ever-present force, a constant reminder that impresses values prized by the god Pharaoh. It acts as both punishment and gift, its form wholly dependent on the prowess of the individual. In stark contrast to the foreboding gloom cast by death's expanding shadow, the Golgari swarm of Ravnica see beauty and purpose through the pangs of departure. Golgari view death as a natural and significant aspect of life's continuous cycle. They don't fear decay, they harness it. The dead fertilize future vigor and abundance. Many are the zombies and fungal creatures that tend rot farms within the Undercity, embracing the benefits of death. We hear the Golgari sentiment in the flavor text of Woodwraith Strangler. Nothing could be more natural than roots sucking nourishment from the dead. And we witness the boon provided by spirits of those who have passed in death's presence. Going further still, the Golgari mechanics of dredge, scavenge, and undergrowth symbolize well the guild's stance on decay and the afterlife. Their rival guild, the Orzov Syndicate, through self-indulgent profligacy, tarnish the dead and their memories. Orzov pontiffs and power brokers obsess over accumulation of influence. Death is not an end to wealth. 
Syndicate oligarchs perform rites to return as ghostly spirits, while their bodies decompose. In fact, through magic and binding contracts, the leading Orzov families have endured for countless centuries. This doesn't, however, inculcate belief in spiritual divinity. The Orzov see the afterlife and the spirits that seek it as merely one more form of exploitable capital. A sham veneer of holiness and religion permeates Orzova, the Church of Deals, where penitents and borrowers are subdued by the lies of predatory clergy into signing contracts. Their souls are forever indebted to church whims. This false dogma ensures obedience in both life and death, as not even the hereafter frees one from grievances owed the church. The Orzov then use these spirits as fuel for spells, as slaves, and as haunting reminders to those living who default on their loans. So too, on the plain of Kamagawa, do we see not only an acceptance of death in spirituality, but even its veneration. Kamagawa is a plain suffused with spirits and the essence of the soul in the form of multiplex kami. It is divided into two realms, the realm of the mortal living and the realm of the ethereal kami, separated by a thin veil. Denizens of Kamagawa believe that all things are associated with kami. They are the divine manifestation of everything both tangible and intangible. Kami spirits are honored at Honden shrines which stud pilgrim roads, and their guidance is often sought. Though all kami are spiritual in nature, they are not all born from the soul of one who has departed. In fact, a great many aren't associated with death at all. The few that are take form in the Goryo, spirits of the vengeful dead, driven by animosity and a desire for reprisal. The Goryo are inexorable. We see in the Masumaro Kami, the spirits of Kamagawa's ancestors coalesce into one being. Lilting and ethereal, the Ona are ghosts of the departed who've returned in the shape of a human woman. It's worth noting that Kamagawa's spirits aren't eternal, at least not when they manifest. Akami's physical form can be destroyed, their essence scattered. Most probably, this signifies a departure from the physical realm and return to the land of Kami for protected convalescence. Two realms across the blind eternities represent what we might envision as heaven and hell. They are Sarah's realm and the abyss, respectively. Bathed in golden splendor, Sarah's realm was created by the eponymous planeswalker as a place free from pain, from suffering, and even from death. It was a plane of pure white mana where angels soared through clouds and where humans worshipped the divine lady within glorious Saren cathedrals. Sarah's religion gained purchase on other planes she traveled, as did the belief that her realm was the final destination for the devout, the Ambrosian afterlife. The nation of Aeson on the plain of Olgrotha praised Sarah for her protection and enacted her will against forces of evil. On Dominaria, the kingdom of Benalia and the region of Circe advocate Sarah's religion. They draw on her power and invoke her name as one would a god. Perhaps she is, for even in death, her influence remains. In contrast to the splendor lies the abyss, 
an enigmatic plane of absolute darkness, suffused with strong ley lines of pure black mana. The abyss is a realm of hell, where demons, devils, and all manner of abomination languish in eternal pain and suffering. The abyss is a rapacious void, a black hole that pulls its souls from across the blind eternities, as depicted in the abyss card, as well as Magus of the abyss. It's the purported home of the most powerful demons in the multiverse, summoned by arrogant wizards, unable to control them. For a time, the great demon lord Belzenlock was imprisoned in this realm. It is the darkness that awaits wayward and malevolent souls. Death wears many faces across the blind eternities. Creatures born from soul flash ethereal and fleeting. Creatures born from flesh creak with the rot of disjointed corpses. Spirits, lingering remnants of those who've long since passed, haunt desolate moors and glow eerily in the distance. They are at times chilling reminders that death is ever-present, at times benevolent sources of constancy in an uncertain world. Most often, these are ethereal echoes who've become lost or else remain trapped in the mortal realm unable to pass into the ether at the edge of a plane. Some spirits are fueled by unnatural fear, greed, hate, or malice, willfully maintaining their essence until a primal urge is fulfilled. Spiritual entities appear in all colors of mana and across various planes. The manner of their creation determines temperament. Many wide-aligned spirits act as helpful guides magnanimous and wise ancestors in whom advice and protection can be found. Misty, blue-aligned spirits chill the landscape and freeze the heart. Red are fueled by reckless abandon, black by avarice, green by preservation, many often misunderstood. Innistrad spirits, called geists, are souls of the deceased who've been denied the blessed sleep. They haunt graveyards and lurk in abandoned manors. The Drogskull militia was long destroyed by hordes of unhallowed, but their spirits remain to watch over the innocent, compelled by supreme duty. Theron spirits are called Eidolons, enchantment creatures born of the starry substance of Nyx. Eidolons are the distilled essence of the soul, a condensed aspect of the individual from which they manifested. Fallen heroes and warriors return as spirits, dauntless, but possessed of war fever. Eidolons of poets and philosophers deliberate obsessively over thoughts that have denied them rest. These spirits are caricatures of natural life, one aspect amplified to the extreme. We hear in the flavor text of Eidolon of Obstruction. Death turned admirable conviction into pointless intransigence. For many years, spirits of the city plain of Ravnica were denied rest. The schism prevented the dead from integrating with the ether of the blind eternities. Instead, they were trapped within a metaphysical bubble known as Agrim, the Ghost Quarter, mist-shrouded ruins that reverberated echoes of the damned. The Great Mending disrupted the schism and once again allowed spirits unfettered access to the ether and oblivion.
Ravnican ghosts and spirits are often used by the guild to promote objectives and ideals. The Azorius Senate, the Orzov Syndicate, and House Demir are most notable in their spiritual exploitation. A sense of duty and justice binds Azorius spirits to the causes they championed in life, which we see in cards like Soul Sworn Jury and Vassal Soul, the latter's flavor text reading, For the Azorius, the opportunity to serve the law is too great an honor for death to interrupt. As mentioned prior, the Orzov see spirits as currency, as a commodity to exchange for influence. The spirits that haunt Orzova's vaulted ceilings are either the eternal oligarchs of illustrious families, or else the tormented souls of the indebted, chillingly displayed in the art of souls of the faultless. House Demir prizes spirits for their ability to avoid detection and their ethereal infiltration. Many souls of murderers are employed by Demir to carry out assassinations or to surveil unnoticed as the flavor text of Haunter of Nightvale suggests. The Demir employ the spirits of Ravnica's ancient, nameless dead, guiding their malevolence toward selected victims. The plains of Arcavios, Tarkir, and Ixalan often seek the guidance of their ancestors through spiritual communication. Lorehold spirits are the souls of ancient warriors and wise leaders filled with arcane knowledge which we can see in Blood Age General. Students of the college plumb ancient ruins and raise the remnants of the dead to gather primary source material for their studies. The kindly echoes within Ixalan's hollow core advise the fifth people and defend their cavernous lands, while spirits of dead beasts haunt its dark tunnels. The Abzan houses of Tarkir are strengthened by the spectral presence of their past generations and honor them as such. The bond of kinship extends centuries and bridges the chasm between life and death. Abzan invoke ancestral spirits for protection and dedicate themselves to future generations, which we see illustrated in Fruit of the First Tree, the flavor text of which reads, I will be the ancestor my descendants call upon for aid. On that day, I will take up my sword for my family once more. Not all is munificence, and there is yet much to be feared in death. The sun-dappled plain of Lorwyn, where brilliant skies never darken, holds little in the way of undeath. But as the great aurora transforms its idyllic wildscapes into the frightening haunts of Shadowmoor, grim creatures stir from their dormancy. The ten-card cycle of spirit avatars are not to be mistaken for the souls of the departed. Rather, these are beings of immense power, whose essence is manifest from the plane itself, and are, according to legend, responsible for Shadowmoor's creation. But we do see the spectral echoes of the dead linger. Some, like the spirit of the hearth and the suture spirit, protect those still living, while the wretched Loch Corrigan and lingering tormentor wish to add to death's legion. Those poor wretches whose untimely end came so heinously it has stained the very essence of their soul are transformed into wraiths. Notwithstanding their introduction in Universe Beyond sets, 
the formation of a wraith was so rare that only five had been printed in all of magic's history. Mortals avoid at all costs the bogs and moors these spirits patrol, for fear that dread will paralyze and consume them. These are among the most lamentable creatures of the afterlife, shadows of grief that evoke torment as heard in the flavor text of Street Wraith. The lamps on Windmore Street snuff themselves at midnight and refuse to relight, afraid to illuminate what lies in the darkness. Murderous, treacherous, and malevolent individuals have in death their traits twisted and amplified tenfold. They cannot let go of the greed and hatred that sustain them in life, so in death they return as vile aberrations in the form of revenants and banshees. These specters stalk moonless nights, screech and wail in pain, and wish to infect others with their unhallowed malice. As the flavor text of Revenant states, it eats death and drinks pain. Truly terrifying are those spirits warped by agony and stained by the strongest black magic known as shades. Shades are born and sustained by perfidy, they commit atrocity and haunt nightmares. Many have the power to grow or shrink in size, to hunt unnoticed, and to grip prey with fear. Their uncontrolled hunger for death is often checked by the binding of a powerful mage. But even the pitiable shade doesn't pierce the deepest agonies reserved for only the most reprehensible. Demons across the multiverse are pure manifestations of black mana that have either coalesced naturally or are otherwise summoned by the powerful. But on select worlds, the demon is the final fate that awaits the gravest sinner. The Oni of Kamagawa and the underworld demons of Theros are conjured into being as the echo of one who possessed dark, negative qualities and emotions. After their passing, their soul lingers, fed by these negative emotions and dark forces until it transforms into the infernal. There is no greater anguish, for a demon is eternally tormented by its own pain, a slave to its vices and desires for eternity. The spirit is only one half of death's equation, however, and there are countless creatures born from the body that is left behind. Flesh is a prized commodity across the multiverse, sought by mages and kings, and it's only the truly blessed that are allowed respite of body and soul upon death. Many are the remains dredged from the oceans, ripped from the earth's embrace, and forced into reanimated servitude as undead. Zombies evoke a visceral fear in mortals. Not only do they shock with grotesque visage, but they represent a hellish future, chained forever to torment. It is a fate most wish to avoid. The zombie creatures so widespread and variegated, a separate video is required to detail an exhaustive list, but there are some planes on which their presence is of significance. The dark world of Innistrad and the corrupt wastes of Amunket share in the fact that their plane's very essence is stained, twisted by dark magic that allows the undead to proliferate. Ghoul callers and stitchers rob graves and fens to revive rotten corpses for nefarious ends. 
The ghouls and scabs at their disposal are mindless, driven by insatiable hunger to feed on the flesh of the living, as we hear in the flavor text of Butcher Ghoul. Without a mind, it doesn't fear death. Without a soul, it doesn't mind killing. Amunket's curse of wandering affects all living things and takes hold upon death. Only those preserved as eternals or anointed through ritual embalming are spared the terrible fate of walking endlessly across sun-baked dunes, magically animated to suffer until the final scrap of flesh sloughs from crumbling bone. The flavor text of Scavenger Grounds enlightens us. When the last scrap of flesh is scoured away, the curse of wandering ends. Then, the dead may sleep. With the recounting of hours and return of Nicol Bolas god Pharaoh, the denizens of Amunket are horribly disabused of their religion. What they once cherished as a bountiful afterlife, and what once held hope of glorious eternity, is instead realized to be enslavement under the cruelest tyrant. The Eternals are cultivated as the fiercest warriors, most zealous champions in life, and in death their prowess is amplified tenfold. They enact their god pharaoh's will with a grace and fidelity unseen in many zombies across the multiverse. The embalming process, the plating of Lazotep, ensures that Eternals retain their physical might and mental cunning into undeath. Rather than aimless, raving dead, driven by hunger for the living, the Eternals represent a zombie tempered by combat, imbued with distinction, and married to the inexorable nature of undeath. As Jace Bellerin puts succinctly in Eternal Taskmaster, they're called Eternals. They will never stop. The Shard of Grixis on the Plain of Alara, denied the life and nourishment of green or white mana, is a land of filth and perpetual rot. An oppressive and stagnant air permeates all things. Necromancers, demons, and vampires command legions of zombies to enact their will. Their power represented in the stores of flesh at their disposal. Denied rest, denied oblivion, Grixix zombies are fueled only by their hatred of the living. With the conflux of the Shard, hordes of undead poured across border zones with an unholy hunger for the satisfying taste of life. A particular breed of zombie, one with ambition, intelligence, and mastery over magic, is presented in the form of the Lich. Liches are the undead of those who sought to defeat death itself and claim immortality. The cost is great, and a lich sacrifices their humanity, their soul, their temperance to achieve what they desire, losing themselves entirely in the process. What's worse, immortality must be sustained for death encroaches constantly, angered by the life it was denied. A lich must consume the spirits of others to feed its existence, which is why we see many surrounded by hosts of undead, bound in servitude, and it's a sentiment echoed in the flavor text of Lich's caress. A lich must consume mortal souls to feed its eternal life. Restless souls stir within the underworld of Theros. Those who've denied their fate or wish to rewrite it follow the path of the returned. Returned are the Theron undead, zombies whose Eidolon or internal spirit has been ripped from them along with their identity as they make a harrowing escape 
from Erebos' domain. These zombies are dark shadows of their past selves, unable to form new memories or relationships and doomed to torment the living. Phoenix, the blue and black aligned god of deception, was the first of the returned to escape from the underworld and lay bare the path for others. He is treacherous and offers spurious promises of rebirth. The returned are garbed in golden funerary masks and unite among the plain's desolate haunts, shunned by the communities to which they belonged. The tragedy of these zombies is that the life restored to them is more lamentable than the fate they left in the underworld. Erebos sends tireless servants from his realm to drag them back to the underworld, as seen in the Nyxborn Agent of Erebos. Another creature of undeath, as prevalent and manifold as the zombie, appears in the form of the vampire. The curse of vampirism and the hedonistic monsters thus spawned are reviled by the living. Mortals see in vampires the manifestation of cardinal sins, of souls once familiar twisted by vice and debauchery into something terrifying. To them, becoming a vampire is a fate worse than death. But for mortals seduced by the thought of life everlasting, by the opportunity to indulge in sensual pleasures for eternity, the siren call of vampirism is difficult to ignore. Innistrad, Ixalan, and the wildlands of Zendikar play host to vampires in various forms. The bloodlines of Innistrad consider themselves discerning. They are the intellectual and social elite of a plane dominated by horrors. Innistrad's vampires believe themselves shepherds of humanity, protecting them from greater dangers while at the same time satisfying their own thirst in the hunt. They relish their superiority and represent haughty ostentation. Ixalan's vampires hail from the continent of Terezon and are most often associated with the Legion of Dusk. Conquistadors and missionaries, they see vampirism as a blessing bestowed by their great god, Aklazots, eternal life as recompense for unyielding service. We see in them a peculiar step away from traditional representation, as they embrace the values of white mana not often found in other vampires. From white mana, their structure, religion, and community is born. Zendikar's vampire families represent a more primal form in which they have surrendered completely to the call of blood and the thrill of the hunt. Adorned with blood paints, tribal tattoos, spiked armor, and equipped with fearsome blades, they lurk in the swamps surrounding their cities of opulence. Zendikar's vampires are unconstrained by morality. They believe only the strong thrive, and they possess an insatiable hunger, perhaps conferred by the peculiar nature of their birth. Millennia ago, the first blood chiefs were created by the corrupting presence of Ulamog, an Eldrazi titan bound within the plain. His consumption knows no limits. His desire to feed is implacable, a trace shared by the vampire spawned through his influence. Beyond the creatures of undeath are death's own agents. These beings, cloaked in darkness, silent and sinister, are portents of doom that invoke dread in the most stalwart souls. Their passing foretells great agony. Spectres are depicted as hooded figures that ride atop flying nightmares, and armed with scythe, 
harvest the memories and sanity of their victims. Symbolic of the erosion caused by their presence, the specter ability has players discard cards from their hand as their thoughts wither. The terror felt at sight of a specter haunts many societies, one of which being the nation of Zalfir on Dominaria, captured in this aphorism. Whatever follows life is incurable. Horrors, abominations that evade description, are also death's servants. Again, these creatures are not the essence of one who has expired, but rather the embodiment of base emotion and powerful forces. Some are created through experimentation, some are born from magic and infernal flame, but most seem to share a hunger for souls yet unclaimed by their overlord. We see this in the illustration of Despoiler of Souls and the flavor text of Delric. It wears the souls of its victims like jewels on a chain. Death is the master of all. It's ever-present and all-consuming. It evokes a sense of dread, of awe, of mystery and escape. For some, it's a brutal tyrant to whom they are forever enslaved. For others, it represents the final chapter of life's beauty, a place of solace and respite from the advances of time. Dr. Kubler-Ross, with her interviews and stories surrounding death, poses profound and existential questions. At the same time, her words arm us against the anxieties married to life's final stage. Though no one can say with certainty what awaits us in the hereafter, the blind eternities offer a glimpse to its denizens of life after death. For many realms, it isn't the end but rather a transition as one discards their physical form and embraces the essence of the soul. Despite its wonders, death is often cast in a sinister shade by those who would twist it who command its obedience to extend their own lives or raise terrible abominations. They may briefly evade its grasp, but eternity is not so long a time to wait, and death never tires. Thanks so much for watching and listening to this video on the beliefs and faces of the afterlife in Magic the Gathering. Let me know your thoughts on which creatures confound you which pique your interest, as well as your own insights and suggestions for future videos in the comments below. And if you're a fan of lore and storytelling, be sure to subscribe to the channel, check out the podcast where content is uploaded frequently. I want to thank my amazing supporters over on Patreon who make all of this possible, and I couldn't do it without their fantastic support. If you'd like to become a lore luminary for access to me, a great community, written scripts, and early video drops, head to patreon.com slash thelorebrarians to learn more. Until next time, go forth and explore the lore.